Was it about a pair of jeans? Because <laughs> <laughs> I did Spandau Ballet split up because Gary said to Tony, oh, Gary Kemp said to Tony off. Hadley, what are those jeans you're wearing? <laughs> Let me put it into context. This week on Walking the Dog, I went for a walk in London's Battersea with the fabulous Martin Kemp. Martin and his wife Shirley have got three dogs, Iris and Pops, the adorable poodles, and Luna, the gorgeous Doberman. Shirley had to wish them off because Martin had a busy day ahead, but I got to have a brief cuddle with them and Shirley before Martin and I headed out for our walk with Ray. Martin's well known for being one of the nicest men in showbiz, and the reason for that is because it's true. He's just incredibly sweet-natured and humble and really lovely company. We chatted, obviously, about his years in Spandau Ballet, the pressures of fame that came with his role in EastEnders, and the importance of his family life with Shirley and his son Roman and daughter Harley. Ray fell hopelessly in love with Martin, and I know you will too. Do, by the way, check out his brilliant new book, Ticket to the World, which is a fascinating collection of his memories about the 80s and the culture he experienced. I'm going to stop talking now and hand over to the man himself. Here's Martin and Raymond. Come on, Ray. Come on, beautiful. Let's put your lead on. He is a beauty, that one. Do you think so? Did you have him last time we met? Yeah, but he was covered in mud. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because we went over Hampstead, didn't we? We went to Hampstead and he was, uh, by the end of it... Yeah. Surely your wonderful other half yeah. was getting really worried because she's so polite yeah. and sweet. And she was like, he's covered in mud, he's got twigs in him, they're never yeah. going to come out. Yeah. This yeah, because so we walked into that mud patch, didn't we? I remember <laughs> that, down the bottom of the hill. <clears throat> It must have been about the same time of the year, but it had been raining non-stop. Yeah, it was hell. So, this is beautiful. I'm so glad you've got me out here. So we're Battersea in... Park? Battersea Park. Battersea Park. This, uh, for me, is like, brings back such memories. Because uh, over here, well, I used to live in Islington when I grew up, when I was a kid, but over here, was where I used to come with all my mates, where, we, where my big day out was to buy a, a, a red bus rover ticket. You know oh, the Red Rovers? Yes. Where you got on a bus and you could go anywhere yeah. back in the day. And um, my trip with my, all my mates was over to Battersea Park to go on the fun fair. Oh. So this I, has happy memories for you, this area? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, it's all about the fun fair for me here. But what I love about it now is they've taken away the original fun fair, that went years ago, mm. but they've left little remnants of it. They've left little bits and pieces. And so it kind of like, every time I walk past it, it takes me right back to being a kid. Well, we should say we're with my boy Raymond, who you've met before. Yeah. And I'm going to be completely honest, I prefer to be honest. Yeah. We did have, I have been lucky enough to spend some time this morning with your two dogs, Lola and Pops. Yeah. But Shirley had to take them off. She's chaperoning today. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we are with Raymond on our own. But we've got Raymond. I know. And, and he's I'm, making up for all of them. He is. So talk me through all your beautiful dogs. Um, we have Lola, who is the newest. Uh, she's a Doberman. That, so uh, <laughs> we have a little flat on the river, right? Yeah. For when we come into town. And there was a, a woman down 
on the same building that had a Doberman and said to Shirley, I, don't, I can't cope with it because, you know, it's too big in the, in the flat. But now we have a dog that's too big for our flat. So Shirley took the Doberman and said, yeah, you want to rescue him. So it's great when he's in our house in Hertfordshire, she is, you know. She, she absolutely loves it, you know, in all the, the, the fields and stuff. She loves that. Yeah. But when we come to London, it's a, bit, <laughs> it's a little bit of a squeeze. So, but listen, I don't mind, you know. Uh, we, we've, me and Shirley have grown up having dogs all our life. And uh, we had a Doberman when we were really young. When we first got together, we had this Doberman called Emma. Mm-hmm. And Lola is the spitting image of Emma, our first dog. Really? Spitting image. So, I mean, if you put the two side by side, they will take your breath away, even though that's quite difficult now because Emma went a long time ago. But uh, she is the spitting image. So it kind of takes us back. And um, so there's Lola. Lola. I've got Pops. Pops I met before. You brought Pops on this podcast before. And Pops... Pops is my toy poodle that kind of like runs the house. Yeah. She's in charge of everyone. You know, she's the cleverest out of all of them. She knows when she's done wrong, when she's done right. She knows she will sit and stare at everybody else being stupid, you know, and playing their games. <laughs> and um, so she's in charge of it all. But then I have my little special one, Iris. That's like your Jose Mourinho oh, special man. one. <laughs> Listen, my heart, she steals my heart. She, uh, she was a rescue from China. So Shirley is part of this, um, part of a dog charity that rescues dogs from China that are being taken towards the meat market there for people to eat. Um, and so there's no nice way around putting that, but, but that's actually what happens. And Iris was on the wagon. So she got taken off the wagon. And, and when you say on the wagon, what? So they were taking her Yeah, they were literally... taking her to, be, to the market, to be eaten. And she was rescued off the wagon and um, not like she was on the wagon, stopped drinking or anything, but she was, uh, she was taken off the wagon and she was, um, Shirley and her charity rescued them and brought and Iris home and we've had Iris for the last couple of years now and uh, she is absolutely beautiful. Well, I've seen her in uh, Gogglebox. Gogglebox. She's seen her on Gogglebox. And you yeah. and Roman and, and Shirley as well do yeah. Gogglebox. She gets spoiled, she gets spoiled ridiculous. Does she? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. She's beautiful, Martha. And is she, as a result of being, you know, going through that, what an awful start she had yeah, to her life. It was How a terrible lovely start that you to saved her, her. Does she, can you see signs of that? Is she fearful sometimes or did she take a while you can to trust see, you? You can see when she runs that she's had her back legs tied up. So she's got a weird kind of gait. But apart from that, now she's like left all of that behind her. She is absolutely my little baby. Well, I'm so excited to be with you today. And we're going to be talking. I've just (coughs) read your book, which I loved. It's so brilliant. It's called Tickets to the World. Yeah. Yeah. And it's essentially kind of a really lovely journey back into where it all started. It's kind of, it's a memoir, but it's also tied in with the 80s and the culture that was going on around the time. Yeah. What it's meant to be really is that it was the idea that I will tell you about my story through the 80s, through that decade. Um, 
but it will also reflect on your own story. You know, because everybody that, that, that lived through the 80s, what it's about is anyone who lived through the 80s, it's jogging your memory and, and reminding you of how it was and what it was like to be there. And for anybody who didn't, it's about telling you and explaining to you what it was about. So I've kind of like, I find a funny thing nowadays, you know, I think, I mean, what am I now? I'm 61 now. And when Stop. I, yeah, well, yeah. And when I look back, but... Martin Kemp, you're 61. 61. <gasps> and then, but when I look back now to me being a kid with Spandau Ballet and all that and all through the 80s, it feels like a different person. It feels like I can look back at it from the outside uh, and give an honest opinion and not just one that is made for the press or made for me to give some kind of like Spandau or Kemp propaganda, you know. Mm. Yeah, so I can give an honest opinion yeah. and that's what it's about. And I, I can tell my regrets as well as being proud of other achievements, you know. But, and there's lots of regrets that you realise that you, you wish you hadn't gone through when you're older. And it takes time and I think it takes kind of life experience for you to realise that. Because last time you were obviously on with your lovely wife, Shirley, and now I've got you, just you, yeah. Martin Solo. So I thought it would be really interesting because it sort of ties in with the themes of your book as well. Just to go back to Junior Martin and how it all happened, really. You were born in, let's go, let's go back to the Martin Kemp origin story. Yeah, go You ahead. were born in North London. Yeah. Well, you grew up in North London, didn't you? With your brother yeah. Gary, obviously. Yeah. And is it Eileen and Frank? Eileen and Frank, my mum and dad, yeah. But you know, when I say I grew up in North London, I grew up uh, in Islington. But Islington, a very different place to how it was nowadays. You know, nowadays it's very kind of... Um, very Yeah, very kind of... <laughs> The really middle-class houses and expensive houses, but mixed with council that are still there. They haven't tried to separate it at all because those houses down there are so beautiful. You know, when we lived down there, I remember in the early 70s that, that when the uh, council was selling all the houses off, you know, to people so they could buy them. They were, I think they were asking ridiculously low money. I think they asked for our, like, Georgian Terrace house, something like 25 grand. But 25 grand in those days, no one had that anyway. So it could have been a million pounds. You know, when I grew up, it was kind of like post-war. It was, there were still bomb sites left over. And where you grew up with your family, was it, you didn't have much money, did you? Your dad was uh, we were, No, we had nothing. Not much money, we, it was nothing. Uh, we, were, we were a family just completely on the breadline. Uh, and uh, you know what we earned, my, my, what my dad earned, we spent. And I remember several times with my mum in tears because she couldn't afford to put uh, meat on the table, or, or you know. What effect does that have on you, Martin? Do you think that makes you it think may... I want to go make this okay for them, and it makes drives you? It makes you ambitious. Well, at the time, you don't see anything different. Mm. You just think that's how it is. Mm. You know, with everyone, you think that's how it is. But I think. In the end, it makes me incredibly proud of my mum and dad that they got through, you know. Because, I mean, I, I, when I look back, I don't know how they made Christmases like they did. I mean, we had next to nothing, but they mm. still saved all year so that they could buy, you know, the special kind of like cans of drink or, or, or some, a few toys for me and Gary. 
you know, it might, the, the effort they must have put in to do that, the work, must have been incredible. So and it makes me incredibly proud, I think. And Gary Kemp, as we say, is your brother. And you and him were always super close, weren't you, growing up? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He, I get the impression he was kind of more outgoing than you. Yeah, I was a shy little boy. You know, I, I had a shyness that was, that was almost uh, debilitating. You know, I couldn't even look at some of my friends without... I tell you, if I was one side of the street and I was with my mum and my mum had collected me from school and I saw my friend over the other side of the street, I would just hide behind my mum's buttocks, you know, <laughs> and bury my face because I was so shy. That's who I was. And uh, it was uh, the luckiest thing that ever happened to us was that across the road from us, uh, there was a block of flats. And in the block of flats, there was um, a, like a community center. And this lady called Anna Scher opened up a drama club there, which my mum put me in. Not to turn me into an actor, but to get rid of my shyness. Mm. And um, it worked a treat for me, you know, it was the best thing ever. Changed your life. Well, I yeah. went to Anna's. Did you? My mum was an actor. She was like, I don't care if you go and do it professionally. It will just teach you how to be with people. That's right. And she was always, I remember there was a kid who wanted to do adverts or something. And she left because Anna said, I don't want to put kids forward at this age because you're not old enough to decide. That's right. That's right. Can you imagine most drama to yeah. be, having that sort of integrity? She would never let anyone do adverts. Yeah. Um, Let's, uh, let's walk back. Should we go this way? Let's find a bench. Oh, lovely, Martin. Let's find a bench. So, so, you end up, little shy Martin decides to join his brother's band. Well, I, it wasn't that so much that I decided to join it. <laughs> I wanted to join it, but my brother, you know, was, uh, he was two years older than me. So he had a band that was working in, uh, like, they were rehearsing in the school music room and going out at weekends to play in front of like 50 of their friends uh, in a local pub or something like that, right? So I used to, I used to carry the equipment. So I was the roadie. It was like, I wanted to do it because I wanted to be involved in it, you know? Yeah. So I used to carry the equipment for him, but I can't tell you how much I wanted <laughs> to be in the band. You know, it was kind of like, I used to dream about it. Uh, and so I, I was desperate to join it and um, I was at a party one, one day, one evening and um, I was standing next to this fella called Steve Dagger who was the band's manager. He was just a friend of theirs from school who was managing the band. And uh, we were both drunk and he said to me, Martin, if we ever get on top of the pops, I want you to be in the band. I want you to be with us. So it kind of like, it's... It was one of those moments in my life that just changed everything. Yeah. You know, it just opened up the door. It was, I, I think in our lives, you know, we only get a certain amount of windows of opportunity that open up, maybe four or five, right? In the whole of your life. And this was definitely, for me, the first one that ever came along. But you were working as a printer, because that's what your dad yeah, yeah, did. Yeah, I was in the print, yeah. Um, I was an apprentice. Apprentice, but yeah. you know what? Been there for about nine months or something. That was a stable job. That was yeah. security. You might have had a pension out of that and, you know, yeah. you knew you could yeah, train. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. would have said, that's too big a risk. 
Yeah. So well, what is it about you that made you think, no, I'm going to go for this? Well, listen, it's, I think it's uh, handed down to me. And I think it came from my dad because it was uh, my dad who got me that job in the print. Uh, he was the first one, you know, it, it, that job, you know, I put it right, you know, in Islington, where I grew up, I left school, I probably had uh, two O-levels to my name, you know, that job, that apprenticeship in the print at that time was a really good job. Mm. And um, my dad got me that. And so when I wanted to leave that job and go into the band full time, uh, I had to go back to my dad and ask my dad to get me out of the job. He wrote the letter and he, he put down, uh, like, Dear Sir, can you um, release Martin from his apprenticeship contract because he wants to become a pop star. And it wasn't, my dad wasn't having fun with that. He, was, yeah. he said it because he actually believed it. You know, and uh, I think it's his belief that, that I take on for my kids. Yeah. You know, carried with me. I, I just hope my kids will do the same for theirs. Because my, my, when my dad wrote that letter, he had no money. You know, they were, they were broke. They could have done with uh, me and Gary going out to work so that we could bring in money to yeah. give towards the house. Because that's what kids used to do in those days, you know. But it's interesting that your parents, yeah, they had that. They wanted better yeah. things for you, you know. Yeah. And so, and it's that confidence that you give kids. You sort of, because a lot of kids are... I sort of brought up to think, why you? What's special about you? Yeah. Whereas the way you've brought up your kids, and it seems like your parents brought you up, is why not you? But listen, I um, I understand how difficult it is to give your kids a chance when uh, you've got no money and how hard it is. Mm. You know, it's much easier for me to stand here today saying, yeah, I gave my kids a chance. Mm. I gave him a couple of years to find out what they wanted to do. And, and that's because I could financially afford that. But I understand how difficult it is. But when I look back to my dad, my dad had no money and he, he let us do that mm. uh, and, um, and believed in us. So it, it's something that I'm, always feel like I'm paying my dad back for always mm. even talking about it today touches me you know that's so lovely and so you joined the band and one thing that you talk about a lot in the book which I loved personally just because obviously I experienced all yeah. that myself in the 80s yeah is the club culture yeah so I'm interested in the culture that your band, which was not called Spandau Ballet originally, it was called Gentry. Well, it was called Gentry before we were part of that whole pop, pop culture. Uh, you know, uh, like early 79, uh, we, was, we were still called the Gentry. But in uh, the middle of 79, we started to go into clubs like Billy's and the Blitz. Uh, and we would, it was a whole new pop culture that exploded at that point. You know, we'd come out of punk that was really dark and dirty and everyone believed there was no future and no ambition in anything. And what usually happens with any pop culture is they turn on their heads. It was all about everybody with incredible ambition. Everybody wanted to be able to do everything. It was all about there was a future after punk's no future. So, in the, and it went from punk being all in kind of black and white with the, you know, the, the leather jacket uniform that they used to wear and uh, the magazines like Enemy and Melody, Melody Maker that were all, were all in black and white um, to an explosion of absolute colour.
Your band was almost, Spandau Ballet was all part of that. As you say, it was New Romantics, it was yeah. called, wasn't but it? You've got but to remember, when the 70s went into 80s, was when most people got a colour television for the first time as well. Yeah. You know, I don't think we had a colour television in our house until 79. So the, the whole world was turning into colour. What's interesting is that but the way you dressed, which was quite out there. Yeah, yeah. Did you not, did you worry about your friends taking the piss out of well, you? Or? In the Blitz itself, there was only probably, what, 150 people. And we right? should say what the Blitz, so the Blitz was... The Blitz is a, was a wine bar that yeah. happened that Steve Strange turned into a club on a Tuesday night, once a week, uh, and it was a bringing together of all the art students that used to go to St Martin's and, and Covent Garden um, around that way. Uh, and so they were coming in, in every, all the clothes that they'd made those previous few weeks, right, and put on display, which is completely over the top. And then it would be the North London contingent, which is us. And so the two did come <laughs> the together. The North London boys. Yeah, and the two came together. Back then, it was, you didn't need money. It was, yeah. it was like a sort of, it was about all coming together because you were like-minded and you were into art and design and yeah. create, it's creativity, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, it used to be like, on a Tuesday night, the Blitz happened, but for the rest of the week, you would organise what you were going to wear for the following week. <laughs> so you'd go to Lawrence Corner where they would sell like uh, old army uniforms for next to nothing and, and you would find stuff in Oxfam shops, uh, old men's suits that, you know, probably the last time they'd, they'd worn them was, uh, you know, to someone's wedding or something. A funeral. Yeah, a funeral. <laughs> so you had to be, I, th I think because you had no money, you had to yeah. be, your imagination had to work, which is the best thing. And you did end up joining the band. You, Gary was reluctant at first. It was yeah, the band. he didn't want me in the band, that's the facts. But I went to my mum and I told my mum, and my mum said, put him in the band. So it was my mum who got me in the band. No one ignores either. Yeah, yeah. My mum got me in the band. <laughs> so she said, if you're going, he's going. Uh, and which, which, you know, it's, uh, it's the sort of thing I think Shirley would do as well, you know. But it feels like it happened pretty quickly. For the band. The band was like a rocket ship. Mm. You know, you know uh, I think in, I joined the band in late 79. And then on my 18th birthday, I signed a record contract. And then within three months, we had a hit record that was number five in the charts. So. And was that, to cut a long story short? Was to that cut a long story yeah. short, yeah. You learned to play the bass, though, on your first day in the band, which I love that you admit that, if well, I'm honest. Well, it's a, little bit of a, it's a little bit of a myth, that, right? Because um, I could play guitar, like, th three or four chords, yeah. right? So I knew how to hold a guitar and yeah. I was comfortable with it. Because uh, I used to play in a punk band at school, right, called The Defects. <laughs> we of course they were called The Defects. Yeah, we used to rehearse in uh, some old dry cleaners, you know. And so um, we, I, played, I played a little bit of guitar. And then Gary said to me, when, if you're going to be in the band, you've got like four weeks to learn uh, 13, 14 songs. But when you want to be in something, when you want to do something that bad, mm. as much as how badly I wanted to be in the band, we, then nothing's a problem. Also, my brain was a lot younger then. I, mean, I think if you asked me to learn it now, I'd, <laughs> it'd take me months. <laughs> I'd have to bail out before. 
I find it interesting that you've said the fame that you had with Spandau Ballet yeah. was actually much easier to handle yeah. than the fame that you had with EastEnders. Why, yeah. why was that? Well, because um, when, you, when you're in a pop band, you know, you're playing to kind of a small bandwidth, you know, that, that are listening to you, probably like 17 to what, 35, you know. But when you're in something like EastEnders, that bandwidth is huge. Is from young, really young kids to really old people. So you're kind of like tripling uh, the bandwidth of people that, that know who you are. So the fame in, in EastEnders just swamped everything. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, when I was in EastEnders, I used to look back at the days in Spandau and think, yeah, I had a bit of freedom then. Really? Yeah. Back in the day with EastEnders, you know, when I was doing it, it was 20 million people a, an evening were watching that show. Um, it was humongous, even to the point where, you know, you had people that loved you and people that hated you. Mm. And uh, I remember once I was walking along Tottenham Court Road. Yeah. And this fella came out of nowhere and just punched me <gasps> as hard as he could in the chest. Absolutely winded me. Like I was doubled over. And uh, he ran away and he said, uh, uh, as he punched me, he said, uh, Steve Owen. And I look, as I looked up, then he hit me. And it was like, just kind of summed it up, really. And, I, and I, at that point, I really did question it, mm. whether or not I should be in that show. Was it worth it? You know, because yeah. the fella could have quite easily had a knife or something. You don't know. But the fame was huge in EastEnders. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. And, I, and it's interesting, with the, going back to Spandau, I found it so interesting reading about your experiences because it did, you've described it as, was it five guys going to Benidorm for yeah. 10 years, yeah, basically? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, did it feel like, yeah, was it just the best ride of your life? Did you, did you wait, did you think, oh my God, I can't yeah. believe we're getting yeah, yeah. to do this? Oh yeah, yeah, for the first five years, <clears throat> um, we were traveling around the world. We were traveling on Learjets. We were doing the whole, you know, playing to football stadiums full of people. And it, it was everything that I dreamt of doing when I was a young teenager. When I used to sit in my uh, geography classes, daydreaming of being in The Who or being in The Rolling Stones. It was everything that I'd ever wanted, everything. And, uh, and we loved it. But it's, it's, it's strange how it works out, that it doesn't matter what you do, mm. in the end, it becomes boring. Because okay. you're, you're repeating it again and again and again. And uh, you're going on to doing the same show again and again and again for 10 years. You're given the same around the world ticket for 10 years again and again and again. And in the end, when you get your round the world ticket, you're going, oh, fuck, I want to start home. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and that's, that's the truth of it. You know, yeah. um, so it, not everything you do, you've got to bring variation into life, haven't you? You know, that's like now I try my hardest to make sure that I do so many different things, mm. uh, as well as writing, or, mm. or as well as so I can use my imagination, as well as my body acting. You know, um, I try to do so many different things because I've been through that stage where I had everything I wanted when I was a kid, everything when I was in Spandau, everything I wanted, from being in a band to a pop star girlfriend with Shirley, you know, and uh, I had everything. But it doesn't matter what you have in the end, especially when you're young, um, you want to move on and get something else. Mm. Did, did you ever, because obviously the point of 
being a pop star yeah. is that you're supremely confident. You're yeah. in control, you're in charge, yeah, yeah. particularly when you're on stage. And sure. Did you have moments of thinking, like, I suppose imposter syndrome, those moments of thinking, what am I doing here? Who do I think oh, I am? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Everybody does. Yeah. But everybody on the planet does. Yeah. You know, uh, I will tell you, I, I used to have this same conversation with George Michael, who had exactly the same imposter mm. feelings. You know, we used to talk about it, and he used to say, yeah, I, I, sometimes I question myself, am I good enough to go out there and do it? And he had the best voice in the world, and he was mm. still questioning himself, you know. Mm. But even when I was in the band, you know, I was, uh, I, I always had this struggle with believing that I wasn't good enough to be in the band. And I always had this thought that the only reason I'm in this band is because the way I look. And that's not a very nice thing to think that's all you're worth, you know. Is all, all I'm worth, you know, the way that I look to be on a magazine front cover when I was a kid and um, you know that that kind of like uh, sometimes really got me and really depressed me and I used to think I'm not very good at playing a bass I don't write songs all I am is a picture on the front cover uh, and as much fun as that was it still wasn't fulfilling who I wanted to be I, but I, I can talk about it now you know it took me a while to talk about that and to accept that mm. and, and have this conversation but that's what I'm saying now you know I'm a 61 year old man now and I look back and I, and I think and I can I look at it from outside of the situation Cheers. I look at it from outside uh, and I can see and when I look back at Spandau you know we were five young guys really good-looking young guys who wrote really good song, pop songs, who played their instruments really well. Mm -hmm. And no wonder we were a hit. No wonder it happened. Because mm. we had all the cogs in place, you know. It, it was a slam dunk. Uh, and it was. First record comes out, slam dunk. And obviously you and your brother were incredibly close, but yeah. I can imagine even that relationship was put under strain, working together all the time. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, Gary and I, we were like the, the pressure point. Mm. You know, we were... We were the two guys in the band that were able to release the pressure. So it always builds up in any any job you're in. You spend so much time with people, especially in being in a band. You know, you're you're living in each other's pockets. You're not just work during the day, but you will go out to eat with each other. You will hang out with each other in the gym during the day. You're seeing each other all the time. So when there was a problem in the band. It would all be, always be left to me and Gary to kind of go into a room, have an argument, and sometimes, literally, a fist fight with each other. We were rolling around on the floor with each other, uh, and that happened once or twice. Uh, and we would walk out, and as being brothers, we yeah. forgot about it because we were always that close. Um, we forgot about it, but as I walked out, I could cut the, the atmosphere with a knife. Because everyone thought, oh, this is the end of the band, you know, they were panicking, you know, they were just had a fight. But it wasn't. For me and Gary, it was just, it was just another fight yeah. that we had. But that's so fascinating <coughs> to me that in a sense, I wonder if, yeah, you and Gary, it became your job to have the fights. Because yeah, yeah. actually, if you two have the fights, it's unconditional love. Yeah, you yeah. can say to your sibling, fuck off, you wanker, slam that's the it. phone down. They go, hi, how are you coming the match? Yeah. Whereas if you'd have had that row with Steve, it would have lasted forever. Tony, it would have split the band up. You yeah. know, if you had that, if, if I was rolling around on the floor with Tony having a fight, <laughs> which I wouldn't have liked to, because he was always <laughs> too big. Um, it, but if that happened, it would have all been over there and then. You know. Yeah. But with me and Gary doing it, it was something that we could just get over and, and work our way around. You know. But um, 
you know, it's all good things come to an end as well. And I it came to an end quite oddly, though. And well, was it was it about a pair of jeans? Did Spandau Ballet split up because Gary said to Tony, oh, Gary Kemp said to Tony of. Hadley, "What are those jeans <laughs> you're wearing?" <laughs> Let me put it into context. <laughs> that wasn't. That is the truth, right? But it took a long way to get there. It wasn't really about the jeans, right? It was about everything else. Yeah, but and, um, Martin, even before, I really need to know about uh, the jeans. Yeah, well, I'll come to the jeans. Uh, but even before, you know, even before we made the last record, uh, Heart Like a Sky, the album, Gary didn't want to do that. You know, me and Gary had gone down to see my mum and dad in Bournemouth, and we were walking along the beach, and Gary said to me, uh, I'm out, I don't want to do it anymore. And uh, which shocks me, absolutely shocks me. And all of a sudden I had this incredible fear of what am I going to do next? Where am I going to go? Where's, what's going to happen to my life? You know, what happens to the Learjet when it's, when it's not flying around with Spandau in it? Who parks it? You know, but I had this incredible fear of I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, so I talked Gary into it, of doing that last album. And I should never have done looking back on it because it was just a horrible atmosphere it was it didn't work out it was the first time Gary had walked into a rehearsal room with a bunch of songs already made as perfect demos and said to everybody practically just copy this you know and so we'd reached that point where it was common sense we shouldn't have made it but we did and so it kind of fell apart and so all those arguments the arguments over making uh, the last album, you know, practically copying Gary's demos and, and getting to that point. We were making the video for uh, a single called Raw and I, there was the argument about the jeans. What happened? <laughs> I can't remember. They, they, I'll tell you, Tony was, Hadley was yeah. wearing a pair of jeans. Yeah, from Gap I think they were. Because didn't Gary say what are those jeans you're wearing from M&S <laughs> yeah. in a disparaging way? And then Tony said, excuse oh, no, me, I, they're I, Gap. I, I think, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But at the time, because of the moment we were in, yeah. right, it was a huge thing to Gary. It was uh, the worst thing you could have said to Tony at that time. You know, and... So everything was waiting to implode anyway. Mm, it could have mm. been, you know, who bought me that ice cream? You know I like an ice lolly. You know, it could yeah. have been anything. And it was the jeans that kind of like, it was the jeans split us up, I reckon. Gap, put you down at Gap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, but you, and you obviously owe your career to, that's why how you met Shirley, because yeah. You were sitting at home watching TV. Yeah. I've gone back and subsequently watched this clip so many times and I thought, <laughs> oh, I can see why he liked her. And I, that's not even my preference, oh, you know, I, I'm straight. I was obsessed, you know. You know Tell me when you got obsessed by Shirley. When we're doing Young Guns, just released it, brand new band, not been on telly before. And I was at home one Thursday evening with my mum and dad because I was still living there at the time. Mm. And uh, I was sitting on the, I remember it well, I was sitting on the carpet with my back up against the arm of the sofa watching Top of the Pops and Wham! came on, and I was absolutely obsessed with Shirley. You know, to the point where you can't see anything else on the television. And, but I, I'll be honest, it had happened to me before that. And uh, I fell in love with Silver Black when I was about six. 
<laughs> for the television. And I told Scylla, and she wasn't very happy about it. <laughs> when, I, when I saw her. What did you I say? Said, I bumped into her at a party. And I told her, yeah, I fell in love with you when I was six. And I think it made a bit old, feel a little bit old. And she wasn't very happy hearing it. So, surely you met at a play called Yakety Yak. Yeah, yeah. You gave her your card. Mm. She called you. Yeah. Except she didn't really call you because it was George Michael that dialed the number. Yeah, yeah, George, <laughs> he dialed the number. Well, she didn't call me for three weeks. And then... Um, so George was at home with Shirley and he said to her, obviously, you know, you want to call him, you know, he's going to think that he'll move on. And uh, so anyway, Shirley, he, he dialed the number, gave her the receiver and uh, he, he spoke to my mum and said, uh, it's Martin there, and then gave Shirley the receiver. Uh, and so Shirley and I got together, you know, and... Um, but he was, didn't just that do like that, he also... Turned up on the date. Yeah, it turns up on the first <laughs> date as the spare wheel. Shirley wanted a wingman, you know, what he's like. But when you're a young man, the worst thing that can happen is that you, your partner or the girl that you're going to go out with brings our mate, you know. Especially when that mate is George Michael. Yeah. Well, he wasn't George Michael as we know him now. You know, he was Shirley's mate. Yeah. And uh, so, but I remember in the Camden Palace spending all evening trying to get rid of him. All evening. <laughs> He could not, he would not leave our sides. So there were moments that uh, we, me and Shirley had sneaked off, we sneaked <laughs> off down the back stairway of Camden Palace to have a little snog, you know, on that date. Uh, and uh, he still turned up. <laughs> he still found us. But yeah. it's a lovely memory, you know, lovely. When I look back now, you know, I miss Jog uh, dearly. You know, he was such a lovely, lovely man. Um, so generous, not just with his money, mm. but with his time mm. and his emotions, you know, that he would give you. Uh, he was just the loveliest man. He was so incredibly lovely and, and supportive to my kids, mm. you know, coming around Christmas days with presents and, and just supporting them. He supported Roman, he, he, you know. My biggest memory of, of York sometimes is uh, sitting around the dinner table and uh, there'd be like 10 of us and we'd all drifted away and it'd just be Jog and Roman left there. And Roman was only young, maybe like uh, 13 or 14, but he was always incredibly articulate, always. And uh, Jog and Roman would not stop arguing. That's all they used to do, one end of the table, everyone would walk away and leave them. They're not, not arguing, but debating mm -hmm. something because Roman, it, it, he's always been super articulate. Uh, and uh, always loves debating about anything. He still does. So that's why he's in the perfect job for himself at the moment. But uh, we would always walk away and leave him. Uh, but Jog was one of the loveliest people, I, I think, that I will ever meet. Oh. Martin, I'm so sorry. What an awful thing to lose a friend. Like, do you know what I sometimes <coughs> think? Well, we all lose friends, though, don't we? We do, you know, but... Along the way, we, we get to this age, and, yeah. and when I look back, the friends that I've lost... Uh, over the years, you know, whether it's um, Steve Strange or yeah. George or Paulie Yates, they're all big characters. Mm. All the big characters leave your life. Uh, and it, it, that's the, what comes with getting older. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned your lovely son, Roman, and obviously you have Harley, your gorgeous daughter as well. And Harley works in music, doesn't she? Well, she, she's a, a musician. She's mm. really good. You know, she, she, she loves country. But that, mm. 
I speak to you a lot about this. You know, you, it's very difficult to make a living like it used to be in music nowadays. You know, it's very difficult. So Harley runs as a, a, well, it's hers, but it's a successful um, a business of running, making te television adverts. So she does that. She does commercials, uh, and uh, she she came out of school. She was uh, she didn't have that many grades, but she wanted to be a photographer. Mm. So I said to her, "I tell you what, I do the uh, the money that I would spend on university. Let's put it into equipment, and instead of that, try and start off on your own rather than going to university to learn how to do." Photography, mm -hmm. because I wasn't sure that was the right thing, and I gave her the money to buy a nice camera. So she started taking pictures, and um, then she became a photographer. But as photography died, mm. um, because everyone could do yeah, it yeah. as soon as digital photography came in, um, she stopped doing that and she opened up her own company, making small commercials. But now they're at a point where they're making television commercials for everyone. And. Obviously, your son, Roman, everyone knows your son, Roman. As you pointed out not long ago, I've come to do a show with Roman. He gets dressing room one, I get dressing room yeah. two. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Which I don't mind. I, I love it, to be honest. You know, well, you know, As a dad, what, what do you want? You know, you know, when, you, when you have kids, the whole idea of it is that they do better than you. you know, it's not for them to do as good as you. It's for them to do better than you. That's what you want. You want to see them. That's what you best. want. Do you think all parents? I, I think them? they should. I, you know, I think they do. You know, deep down they do. You know, it's that lovely moment when, when you first your kid first beats you at FIFA uh, <laughs> on the, uh, on your uh, Xbox, uh, and you know that he's going beyond you. You know that. But you know, it's lovely not just to see that on your Xbox, but in life. You want them to be happier. You want them to be more successful. You want them to go on uh, and have um, an incredible life. When you look at your relationship with your kids, what do you think, say for example, Roman, what has he helped you with? How are you better? What have you learned from him? Uh, a lot, to be honest. He, uh, like I said, he's incredibly articulate. And uh, the way that he pre presents himself is incredibly well and I think uh, working with Roman uh, I think some of that rubbed off on me uh, where before I was always slightly shy you know always I always had that little shy kid that was Martin Kemp young boy inside me and I think Roman just pushed that to one side so uh, yeah I think he helped me with that isn't that lovely well I think also but I can see what that is though Martin because as you said it's so interesting to me, and I think it's great when men talk about that because it's always women saying, yeah. "I felt I was, I was just judged for my looks a bit," and yeah. that's all. Pe and actually, that's really makes sense to me. It's a difficult thing for me to talk about because it makes me feel like I'm not being very humble, or it's it's not me, you know. Because, uh, but the older I've got, and you lose all those young boy looks, you know, and yes. it was somebody else you're talking about. Because there's this lovely. Oh, I'm sorry, Raymond. Need oh, to put a bottle on his head. Um, the, uh, <laughs> but there's this lovely thing that I, I read a while back and it's that every seven years you've changed every cell in your body 
every cell is like regenerated, mm. right? So you've lost who you were completely. There's not one piece of you left. Uh, and so for me sitting here today at my age, it's kind of like I've seen about five or six different versions of Martin Kemp <laughs> since the days of VH1 and since the days of MTV. But so I can look back at it uh, uh, as an outsider. I get almost. that. But you're a, a grafter, you're a yes person. And it's interesting, some people would have been in that band and thought, I've been in a band. Yeah. I, I'm, it would be easy to kind of live off that for the rest of your life and sure. not try anything new. Sure. I think it was so interesting to me that you were like, I'm going to try this. And you, you and Gary had got the part in the craze. Yeah. Around the time <coughs> Spandau was wrapping up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you went to see the crate did you yeah, go well Ronnie I went to you see. went to see Ronnie Craig yeah 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 um, well you know the, the, the craze was always kind of like the springboard into the next part of my life you know I knew the band was coming to an end and the craze was kind of on the table as the band came to an end which was it was one of the reasons that the band did come to an end I think because it, it scared everybody in the band because as soon as Gary and I spoke about doing the Crayswin movie, they thought everybody could see, yeah, this is going to make a move on, right? And eventually it did. Uh, so it was kind of the springboard, but making that movie was, was something that, I suppose I felt this strange idea that I was representing the part of London that I came from. And uh, there were so many people looking at it thinking, no, oh, Martin and Gary are going to be rubbish in this, they're just pop stars. But what I don't think people understood at the time was that Gary and I had both gone to Anna's for Anna Scherz for eight years or something. And when you learn something like acting when you're a kid, the way that Anna taught, taught us, mm. right, without scripts or anything, it was just purely improvisation, it becomes part of your personality. Yeah. So it's not that you're switching on or trying to do, uh, or trying to act, yeah. it's just acting is you. That's who you are. It's inside you because she built in part of your personality. Mm. It's muscle memory. But I went in to meet Ronnie in Broadmoor. I couldn't meet Reggie, the guy that I was playing, because he was category A. And uh, so I went in to meet Ronnie because Ronnie was in Broadmoor. Broadmoor's a hospital, right? Mm. So they could all, they were all wearing their own clothes. And, and Gary and I sat down with Ronnie who was wearing this immaculate black suit, white shirt, black tie, and he looked like Ronnie Cray. Even right? in the prison he was? Yeah, yeah, and he looked like Ronnie Cray that you'd read about. Uh, and we sat down with him, but there was a huge surprise because when I sat down with him, no one warned me, right, that Ronnie had a really high-pitched voice. <laughs> you expect him to sound like Danny Dyer. All right, Mark, come and sit down, come and have a cup of tea. But he didn't. He had a really high-pitched voice. And it was all I could do to stop from laughing. All. You know, because you're built up anyway. You've got all that, you know, that tension. And all you want to do, really, sometimes is laugh. And it was a strange situation. But when he started speaking to me, it was like, where's this coming from? I thought he was putting it on. And you, as I was saying about you, always trying things you know you did EastEnders and it was huge and again that's I did you ask to leave did you feel I've had enough of this level yeah. of fame now yeah 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 I'd uh, done it for three years three and a half years and your kids were quite young at the time as well so yeah, that yeah. must have added to the pressures yeah but I knew where I was going as well I knew that ITV had asked me uh, to, to 
go over there and do mm. this golden handcuffs mm -hmm, deal mm -hmm. with them for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I knew where I was going. And uh, I went in and I told the uh, producer then that I'm going to leave. And he was said, yeah, Mark, whatever you want. You know, you've been a big character here. You, you, uh, we'll always leave the door open for you because, you know, you've been a big character here. So I said, oh, OK, that's great. So I go back in a few months <laughs> later and he said, uh, Mike, where are you going to go? Where are you going after you leave? And I says, well, actually, I've got a deal with ITV. So when I go back in and I read this, my final script, I get blown to pieces. <laughs> they believe me to pieces because I was leaving. And as much as they deny it, that's exactly what happened. It's all gone a bit Ronnie yeah, Gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's so lovely as well seeing you working with Roman now. And that relationship is just, it's really touching. I think people love it. People love that relationship. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Um, you're really seeing us. You're seeing, we're not acting. You know, we're, we're putting on something. We're, you're, we're letting people see our relationship that we've had all our lives even when Roe was 10, sitting on the sofa. And uh, we've always had that relationship where we'll sit there taking the mickey out of the television and taking the mickey out of each other or winding each other up. It's just that the older Roman's got, the better he's got at it. That's the trouble. And uh, so it, I think that's what people enjoy is looking inside like mine and Roman's relationship. Uh, and we you don't make out it's anything different than it is. You seem like you handle fame well, Martin. Um, they ignore it. They ignore it. Because I think if uh, you recognise it too many times, you, it would send you mad. It's something that's really unnatural uh, for you to walk past people and for you to have to keep your head down all the time. Uh, and I went through a stage of that where I was always keeping my head down and trying to wear a baseball cap and get sunglasses. And there I said, fuck it. You know, you just if people say hello, they say hello, and and you get on with it because it can disturb you completely if you live life, you know, under a pair of sunglasses and, and a hat. So it's it's something that I live with now. You know, it's been a part of my life since I was um, just turned eighteen uh, in di in different forms, uh, and so everybody's and raided every part of my closet over the years and they've seen what's in there uh, and so there's nothing else to reveal <laughs> so uh, I just live with it now and it's so nice that you've been able to I suppose educate Roman about that and yeah. he's grown up with it yeah, so yeah. he's you well Roman's grown up with it you yeah. know he's like <clears throat> you know like I say go back to that story when it was just Roman and George sitting around at the dinner table arguing the odds over nothing, you know. Um, he's grown up with the most famous people in the world around him. Mm. So fame doesn't mean much to Roman either. Uh, and he knows how to cope with it. And I've always said to Roe, what fame is inside this business, you should never look at it in any other way than it is a ticket to get a better job. It's a ticket to your next job. And that's why you need fame. But it really is just a ticket for your next job. Well, you once said to, um, I think you were being interviewed by Piers Morgan, you're on Good yeah. Morning Britain, and I never forgot this. He said, which is, you know, a standard argument yeah. to be fair, he just said something about Love Island, and yeah. he said, oh, what do you think about this kind of fame? No, it's not proper fame, yeah. and people shouldn't get famous this way. And the standard response when someone says that is to say, yeah, you're right. You didn't, you said, we're all entertainers. 
Well, we are. We're all entertaining everyone on television. It does not matter how you get to that point, whether you take the quick route round or you take the route where you have to sit in the back of the transit and do a million gigs to get mm. onto the top of the box. It doesn't matter. But this day and age, if you can get there, who's going to turn it down, right? <laughs> yeah. You're going to say, no, it's all right. I won't take that million pound because it'll be bad for me later on. It's a, it's a job, you know, it's a job. And uh, if a good job comes up, uh, you don't turn it down. Yeah. You, you take it and you grab it. Uh, we, are, we are incredibly lucky people that we are working in a business that really is our hobby. Mm, mm. You know, that's what we do for a living. We've turned mm. our hobby into, into a job. And if you can do that, mm-hmm. uh, it's a conversation I've had with my kids a million times. Uh, if you can turn your hobby into your job, that's success. And um, above everything, above, above money, above everything, that's success. Martin, I have loved our walk. Well, I was so knocked out by your book. I think it's absolutely oh. brilliant. It's called Tickets to the World. Have you enjoyed seeing Ray again? Oh, beautiful. He is the prettiest little guy that I've seen for a long time. He really is. He's beautiful. Aren't you a big boy? I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.